Well, good morning. good morning. Bear with me a moment as my technology decided to reset itself. Yes. So as Andrew mentioned a little bit earlier, we have entered into a new season on the church calendar, and that, of course, is the season of Lent. And with that new season comes a new passage for us to study as well, and we'll dive into Isaiah 53. So in some ways, it's a little bit of new, but in some ways, we're doing what we've been doing since the beginning of November, when we started looking at the season of Advent and diving into that season of expectation for God's arrival as we looked at Isaiah 40. And then, of course, with the new year, as you, many of you probably remember, our calendar shifted to the season of Epiphany. And there we focused on the idea of Jesus becoming man. And we reflected on four passages in Isaiah and what they revealed to us about our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. And so for Lent, which began this week on Ash Wednesday, uh, ends on Easter Sunday. It's traditionally observed as a season of repentance and meditation on Jesus' suffering and death, and culminating, of course, in an Easter Day celebration of Jesus' resurrection. So that's where we're headed, and we certainly look forward to that. And as I said, as we work our way through Lent, we will be working our way through Isaiah chapter 53. But before we get started on that this morning, let's take a moment and pray to prepare our hearts to receive God's word. Heavenly Father, as we enter into this new season of Lent and this new passage of study, we pray that you would open up our hearts. You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, to open us up to your truth, and to reveal to us our own personal needs for repentance, and prepare us for the joyous celebration of your victory over sin and death. Amen. Now before we dive into our passage for today, I'm going to do what I usually do. I think it's helpful for us to consider some relevant history of God's people up to this point. We'll start with something most people are familiar with, and that's the reign of King David. And as most of us know, David reigned over a kingdom of Israel which was united. All 12 tribes united under a single king. The kingdom then passed on to David's son Solomon, and Solomon also reigned over a united kingdom. But after Solomon's death, the kingdom split. And we then had a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. And things started to go not so well then. The northern kingdom of, of Israel lasted about 200 years through a variety of kings, all of whom we are told did evil in the sight of God. And finally they were defeated and exiled to Assyria in about 722 B.C. For the southern kingdom of Judah, things went a little bit better. They actually had a handful of kings who were told uh, were relatively good and relatively loyal to God. And so God preserved that southern kingdom for a little bit longer. But eventually they suffered a similar fate, about 130 years after the fall of Israel, and probably about 100 or so years after the death of Isaiah, the Babylonian Empire defeated and exiled that southern kingdom of Judah. So through this time, you can think of maybe some of God's faithful people, and Isaiah would certainly be one example of that. And as they looked at what they saw, divided kingdoms, life in exile, you can imagine that 
they thought this isn't how the story was supposed to go. This wasn't what life for God's people was supposed to look like. God, as we saw in our scripture from Acts, he had promised to make a great nation out of Abraham, the father of this great nation. A nation through whom the entire world would be blessed. Later, God called the generation of the Exodus to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, charging them with bringing the knowledge of God to the entire world. But they rejected God and his ways. So with all that in mind, I think we can go ahead and jump into the book of Isaiah, but a little bit earlier than our, our focus for today. God gives a good summary of the state of his people as you look in Isaiah chapter 50, where God says, because of your sins, you were sold. Because of your transgressions, your mother was sent away. When I came, why was there no one? When I called, why was there no one to answer? Was my arm too short to deliver you? Do I lack the strength to rescue you? So God's describing here how his people had failed to carry out his mission for them. But as you read just a little bit further, in Isaiah 51 and the first part of 52, God continues to make good promises for his people. He promises Israel comfort, compassion, joy, gladness, thanksgiving, and peace. He promises to give all nations instruction, justice, righteousness, and salvation. He tells his people not to fear. He's going to defeat their enemies. God himself will rescue them and will provide everlasting joy and gladness. God promises to send his people home from exile where they will then live in freedom and God will also return to his people there and everyone will see him there and set aside their sin and idols. As I read through these questions of God, I think this, and I can imagine many contemporaries of Isaiah would have thought this. It's easy to come to a question. You see all these promises of God. You understand the state of how God's people got to where they were. How is this going to happen? How is God going to bring about all of these promises? Well, if we continue reading a little bit further in Isaiah 52, I think we see the answer. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13, says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. So if we go back to that question, how is God going to implement his promises? I think our answer is right here in verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. Old Testament often uses wisely or success interchangeably. My servant will have success. So the promises are going to be fulfilled through this unnamed servant of God. Who is this servant? Well, Andrew gave us a preview of the servant uh, about four weeks ago. And through Andrew's discussion of the servant, we saw that the servant would not fail to complete 
the mission that God gave him. This was revealed to us through four passages in Isaiah, often called four servant songs. And the first three of those servant songs come in chapters 40, 49, and 50. And in those three chapters, we saw that the servant would do several things. The servant would be filled with the spirit of the Lord. The servant would bring the nation of Israel back to God. He would bring God's light and justice to all the nations. And he would be obedient to God and sustained by God throughout his work. And so here in Isaiah 52, with the last three verses we just read, and running through all of Isaiah 53 is our fourth and final servant song of Isaiah. And it tells us in pretty good detail how God is going to fulfill these promises. Just to briefly go over these three verses in chapter 52, they're really kind of an overview of where we're going with the series, an overview of what happens in chapter 53. It says that God's servant will ensure the fulfillment of God's promises, but that it's not going to look how we might expect. The servant will have to endure suffering so that he is marred beyond human likeness. But be assured that the servant will be successful, and eventually all in this world, even kings, will recognize what the servant has done, and they will be left speechless. They will shut their mouths. And so as we prepare ourselves for today's scripture, to summarize where we're at, we saw that God's people had failed to uphold his commands, and yet still God vowed to uphold his promises to them. And God's servant is his chosen instrument through whom God will bring those promises to reality. And that brings us now to Isaiah 53. Hear God's word to us. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, 
he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. So this, of course, was all of Isaiah chapter 53, but our focus for today is going to be just on the first three verses, and we'll hit those last three wonderful verses on Easter Sunday. So as we look at verse 1, verse 1 here is really kind of a recap of what we've already saw at the end of chapter 52. It starts off with saying, who has believed our message? Some translations say, who would have believed our message? In other words, what it's telling us here is who could have seen God at work in this situation? Who would have recognized that this servant, Jesus, was in fact God's promised Messiah? Now something that's implied in this verse is the often hidden nature of God's work. You may recall that last year we went through a series on Jesus' parables about the kingdom of God. And related to that, in Matthew 13, the disciples ask Jesus why he speaks in parables. Jesus responds to them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand." So I think there's a couple key phrases here, the way it starts off. To you it has been given to know, and to others, seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear. So if we go back to the question posed here by verse 1 in 50, Isaiah 53, who would have believed? Really, it's those to whom it has been given to know, those to whom God has given the knowledge so that they can recognize his presence among us and his arm at work. As you move into verse 2, it starts to tell us some of the reasons why maybe people didn't recognize Jesus. And that's that his life didn't look like what they expected. It starts by saying that the servant grew up before him, or before God, as a tender shoot or a root out of dry ground. Now while very soon we will all be fighting many weeds that come up through the wet ground of winter and spring, as we move into the heat and the dryness of, say, late June, you don't get a whole lot of new growth uh, in, in the area. So it would be unexpected for us to see shoots coming up out of such dry ground. In the same way here, what we're seeing is that the very life of God's servant, the very life of Jesus, was in some ways unexpected. He came from humble beginnings, which is not what the Messiah was supposed to be. We can see this in John chapter 1, when Nathaniel, who would later become a disciple of Jesus, Asks Philip, can anything good come from Nazareth? We see this in Luke 4, which Dave touched on a couple weeks ago. 
When Jesus reads from the scroll of Isaiah in his own home synagogue and proclaims that the Spirit of the Lord is in fact upon him, and he is the fulfillment of the prophecy from Isaiah 61. And of course, many, because they knew him for his entire life, they didn't believe him. He's just the son of Joseph. He's just the son of a carpenter. This wasn't what we expected the Messiah to be. But Jesus also didn't look how they would have expected. Still in verse 2, it says that the servant would have no beauty or majesty or nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. To put it another way, there was nothing about Jesus that would believe one, lead one to believe that he was, in fact, the prophesied king of his people. If you go back to the first three kings of Israel, just as an example, this isn't the case. Saul, we're told, came from a wealthy family. He was a man of standing. He was as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than everyone else. Saul looked like a king. Next King David, while maybe in his childhood was not as impressive as his brothers, he's still described as someone who's glowing with health, having a fine appearance and handsome features. But David looked like a king. And then on the Solomon, Solomon is even described by Jesus as having splendor and glory. And no other king in Israel's history had as much wealth in the in the kingdom as Solomon did. Solomon certainly looked the part of king. But not Jesus, we're told here. Most likely Jesus looked like just another average first century Jewish man, and not like the king that these people were expecting. The expectations go a little bit further. It's safe to say that Jesus didn't meet the people's expectations of what the Messiah was supposed to do either. The Messiah, they thought, was supposed to be their king. He was supposed to be a political and military figure who would conquer every enemy of his people and restore the nation to its rightful place in the world. So you can imagine people saying, where is our freedom from Roman oppression? Where is our political and military victory? And so because they were so fixated on these ideas of what the Messiah was supposed to do, that they ended up missing the presence of the Messiah right before them. We see this in John's Gospel, chapter 12. John writes that even after Jesus had performed many signs to his people, signs that should have indicated to them that he is in fact the Messiah, they still would not believe in him. He didn't meet their expectations. Of course, in some ways, our world today is really not so different. We have expectations of God, and we hear that when people ask questions like, how could a loving God allow bad things to happen to good people? Or if God is all-powerful, why does there seem to be so much evil in the world around us? Now here today, we have the benefit of the complete word of God, so we know how the story ends. We have an idea of what some of those answers to those questions might be. We also know that Jesus, when he was here on earth, did not reveal himself in all of his glory, except for maybe a very short period of time to Peter, James, and John during his transfiguration. And we know that while God's kingdom has come and is among us, 
It has not yet reached its full extent. But as our first song says today, we will wait for the Lord. That day is coming. And we have confidence in the word of God that Jesus is our Messiah and that God's promises will, in fact, be fulfilled. But many, of course, in the first century, Jews in the first century, did not have such confidence in Jesus as we do. And so, as we move into verse 3, it says that Jesus was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. We don't have to look very far in the Gospels to find examples of all of these. Luke chapter 4, which we just spoke about, after Jesus proclaimed the Spirit of the Lord was upon him and his own people did not believe him, what happens next? They take him to the edge of a cliff where they're going to throw him off. But Jesus is able to get away. Even Peter, perhaps one of Jesus' best friends here on earth, would three times deny that he even knew who Jesus was. And the Gospel of Mark in chapter 15 tells us how Jesus was mocked by the Roman soldiers as they flogged him, giving him a crown of thorns. And he was mocked by bystanders at his crucifixion, telling him, if you are the Son of Man, come down from that cross. Save yourself. These are just a couple examples of how Jesus was despised and rejected by mankind. And of course, I think we're all aware that Jesus was familiar with suffering and pain. We'll look at that in greater detail as we go throughout the rest of this chapter, as the words of Isaiah do reflect much of what Jesus endured for us. But for now, I think it's enough to know that Jesus, of course, did suffer greatly as he was beaten, flogged, and crucified, all that just during his trial. Some translations say, as another of our songs this morning said, that Jesus was a man of sorrows rather than a man of suffering. And as you read through the Gospels, you can find examples of Jesus being sorrowful. We see the sorrow of Jesus as he weeps over the people of Jerusalem. And we see the sorrow of Jesus as he weeps for his friend Lazarus, who had died. But here in Isaiah 53, if you read a little bit further, and I don't want to steal too much from Mark's sermon, in verse 4 it says that these are not the only sorrows that Jesus carried. Verse 4 says that Jesus bore our griefs, and he carried our sorrows. So as Andrew walked us through the prayers of the people so many of those things which do cause us sorrow, Jesus bears those for us and with us. We're not alone. And in fact, he experienced sorrow greater than any of us could possibly imagine. As we look towards the end of verse 3 here, it says, The people hid their face from the servant, and they held him in low esteem. Now, the people of Israel, perhaps even many of those who considered themselves followers of Jesus, they would have seen his presence on the cross as a sign of condemnation from God. Deuteronomy 21 says that the one who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. And so here is Jesus, crucified, hanging on a tree. They would have seen him as cursed by God. And as a result, they would have looked away and held him in low esteem. He certainly could not be who he claimed he was if he's on the cross. 
Or I think it's a natural tendency for us to read things like Isaiah 53, to read the Gospels, and wonder, how could they not have recognized who Jesus really was? How could they possibly despise and reject him and hold him in such low esteem? But of course, as you read through the entirety of the Bible, you know that rejection of God was not unique to the time that Jesus walked on this earth. Adam and Eve rejected God when they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Israelites rejected God after he had rescued them from Egypt, preferring their familiar life of slavery in Egypt over trusting God as they walked through the desert. And when Israel asked Samuel for a king, God responded, they have rejected me from being king over them. So it's a common theme in the Bible, the rejection of God. And of course, I think many of us are aware that the rejection of God continues today. We live in a nation where, for the first time in our history, the majority of our people reject God. And we can see visible signs of that rejection. In the last 50 years, over 65 million lives have been lost to abortion. In the last 20 years, drug overdose deaths have risen from less than 20,000 a year, which is high enough, to well over 100,000. In Mesa County, just in the last three years alone, violent crime rates have risen about 30%. There's more. We see it every day around us. So our society is really just like the society that Paul described in Romans 1, and this is the paraphrase. While the work of God is clearly visible, our society has not recognized him, glorified him, or given him thanks. Instead, we have become fools, exchanging the glory of God for the things of this world. But if we're honest, it's not just non-believers who reject God. We do it too. We fail to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we often choose the things of this world over God. Non-coincidentally, Ross covered many of these things in his time of confession, but here's some examples, and I could probably say all these are true of me. We sometimes think that politics can solve all of our society's problems, and therefore we create an idol out of politics and reject God's sovereignty. We think of ourselves as good people. Our sins aren't that bad. And when we do that, we reject the truth that God has written about us, that all, in fact, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We oftentimes don't speak up about our faith because we're worried about what others might think of us or how they might treat us in return. We prioritize other aspects of our lives, careers, hobbies, over our relationship with God and time spent reading his word and time spent in prayer with him. Many of us have experienced tragedy in our lives and perhaps our response to such tragedy was even to blame God or to question God. At times, I think we desire the blessings of God more than we desire God himself. 
and use the words of James, James chapter 4, kind of a summary of this. We often choose to be a friend of the world, and in doing so, we therefore become an enemy of God. I think it's fair to characterize these sins and many other sins that we commit as really a sinful attitude. We think we should be the Lord of our own lives. We think that we know what's best for us. And we think that others, or sorry, we think that we know how others deserve to be treated in response to their actions. That's our sinful attitude. What should we do about that? Well, as Jeff read for us from Acts 3, verse 19, it says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Repent. Oftentimes I think we think of repentance as just being sorry or asking for forgiveness. And those are important steps. But repentance is more than that. Repentance really represents a complete change in direction. So that when we repent, we must completely reject what's God, turn the other way, sorry, we must completely reject what's bad, get that fixed, (laughs) (laughs) completely reject our sin, turn away from it, and move towards what's good, move towards God. Paul writes it this way in his second letter to Timothy. Paul writes, flee the evil desires of youth, turn away from your sin, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, turn towards God, along with those who call on the Lord out of of a pure heart. Another way that I think we may often get a false idea of repentance is we think of it as a one-time event. I repented, I was baptized, that's all I need. Martin Luther's first thesis, and I thank Mark for bringing this to my attention, which he nailed to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, says that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. Similarly, pastor and scholar R.C. Sproul said, repentance is not a once-for-all event at the beginning of the Christian life. It is a lifelong attitude and activity. So when we repent, we turn away from our sin and we turn toward God. Because God is the only one with the power not only to forgive us of our sin, but the power to one day completely remove our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And repentance is something we should do every day, perhaps multiple times every day of our lives. I think Psalm 51 provides a good example of repentance that we can look at. King David, after realizing his sinful affair with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite, acknowledges and confesses his sin to God. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And then David turns the other way in repentance, asking God to Restore to me that joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways 
so that sinners will turn back to you. May we be able to follow this example of repentance in our lives as we respond to our own sinful attitudes. Let's pray. Lord, help us to recognize the ways that we despise and reject you and hold you in low esteem. Help us to completely turn away from our sin and return to you. Help us to make you and you alone the focus of our lives. Amen.